through Genesis and from Genesis. If you're with us this morning and you're without a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle. We want you to hear the Word, but we want you to see it with your own eyes as well. And uh, please, if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from us to you uh, today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. And then the eyes of both of them, that is Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said to him, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, The woman whom you gave me uh, to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, apparently the Lord was not in the mood for more excuses and he uh, quit asking questions when he got to the serpent here. Goes, cuts to the chase. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And, then, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Speaking now of Satan who used this, uh, the serpent as a, a means of temptation. And uh, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And then he said to Adam, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. And toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And also Adam and his, uh, for Adam and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he should put out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever in this condition. Therefore the Lord God uh, sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground to which, from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim in the, at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for once again in this study of these early chapters in Genesis for revelation that we could never otherwise have understanding of the world that we live in, why it is the way that it is, that we could never ever come to understand uh, even remotely so completely. We pray that you would take these verses and the truths that are found in them 
and we ask that you would further equip us as your children uh, to operate for your glory in the midst of this fallen world. And we pray that the truths that are found here, uh, you would also apply them to our personal relationship with you as well. We pray for this work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives. Give us a supernatural capacity to hear your voice in some way through your word this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Chapter 3 of Genesis is a record of the temptation of Adam and Eve and their fall, uh, then the consequences of that fall, and then finally the chapter closes with uh, God's answer to the catastrophe of the fall of Adam and Eve in, in his provision of a plan, in his provision of a, a means of salvation from uh, all of the catastrophic consequences. This morning we're going to continue to examine the consequences of that fall of Adam and Eve. And last week we noticed that uh, the devil and all who follow his methodologies, uh, they are, will never tell us the full consequences of the sin that they are tempting us uh, into and uh, by disobeying God's commandments. And then we also saw that Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the Garden of Eden, that it lit, unleashed literally in an, a whole world of consequences that came down not only upon their heads, but upon us as their descendants and upon all of the, the, uh, the earth as well. And, uh, and, and it set all of these in motion, all of these unintended consequences that uh, sin always launches and that once we commit a sin, those consequences launch forth and we have no capacity at all to control how uh, far-reaching they will become. Uh, there is the saying concerning sin, sin is messy. It is very messy. Uh, you, there is no... Uh, there's nothing surgical about sin. Once we commit a sin, there are consequences. And they go out in all direction, and it creates a mess in all directions as well. And then we also saw that Adam and Eve's sin uh, launched these consequences in, not only in their own lives, but again into the whole world and into our lives as their, their descendants. Every one of us is dealing with the consequences of of that fall. We've already uh, studied in, in uh, three major consequences of, of the fall, the existence of suffering and evil in, in the human condition, and then the greatest consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve uh, of, of all, and that is a spiritual separation from God, from a relationship with God, the spiritual death that occurred there. And then this morning, we want to now examine uh, other more specific consequences that God brings out in this chapter and, uh, and it's clear that he wants us to be aware of them. The uh, fall of Adam and Eve, a literal fall of a literal Adam and Eve in a literal garden uh, of Eden uh, is, was and is real and uh, as witnessed to by the consequences that we live with uh, 
all day, every day, as descendants of Adam and Eve, if we will only, as the Scriptures allow us to, uh, be aware of what those consequences are. We see the first consequence here this morning in verse 7, where we're told concerning Adam and Eve that the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they uh, were naked. And so immediately, I mean, imagine when they partake of that forbidden fruit, in one instant they are a something. They enjoy a quality of life, a perspective, um, and then in one instant that is gone, and they are um, most aware of it at all. They realize a dramatic change has happened in their lives inside and out, and the Uh, this great promise that Satan had given them of divine enlightenment that would come to them in the knowledge of good and evil. He's such a dirty liar. And uh, and it it was nothing of the sort in terms of what began to unfold. And here we have in their nakedness, their awareness of their nakedness is the the loss of innocence as a result of, of the fall. And so it was exactly as Satan has said. He's, he's a master of half-truths. Uh, they, they did gain knowledge, but as a result of the knowledge that they gained, previously they'd only had a knowledge of good, not of evil. Uh, they gained knowledge, but in the gaining of that knowledge that God did not want them to know, there was a loss of innocence. And any time we become knowledgeable in anything that God commits condemns in his word or forbids that we practice uh, in our lives, there is a corresponding and permanent loss of innocence in, in that area. And the innocence, and innocence concerning evil is a very beautiful thing in a human life. And obeying Satan's temptations to sin, it always results in that loss of a priceless uh, uh, innocence. Of course, the culture that we live in today in the United States of America, it's true of most Western uh, culture, but our culture certainly places no value uh, on innocence at all. The culture that we live in is, is, is determined to run headlong without any restrictions at all in its exploration of evil. Everywhere you want to turn in, in uh, modern contemporary entertainment or literature or uh, within even education and uh, uh, games, everywhere you want to look within the culture, it is an exploration of evil. It is a, for the most part, it is a uh, drawing people into an experience uh, with it, attempting them into it. You think about, in terms of our culture, and, and independent of the kingdom of God, independent of you being a Christian and your contact with uh, the things related to God, as you navigate this culture that we live in, is there ever a single day in which uh, this culture it's, it, itself, uh, number one, exposes you to and then encourages you in virtue? It doesn't happen. We have to find it. We have to search it out for ourselves, and we have to find it in God. It has just literally almost uh, disappeared from the culture any nourishing, uh, nurturing people in, even exposing them uh, to uh, virtue. And this is what we 
we find ourselves in the middle of. And what we forget is that a loss of innocence is a terrible loss in, in a human life. And the innocent can always become experienced in evil. But those who become experienced in evil can never again uh, be innocent in quite the same way. And unfortunately, our culture has become so evil, not only in its interests, not only in its explorations in terms of media, in terms of uh, entertainment, but in terms of practice. And unfortunately, because it's become so debased and so accommodating of it, by virtue of that, sometimes we have to educate ourselves, certainly educate our children uh, 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 concerning a measure of, of evil in order for them to be protected, not to be vulnerable and become a victim of what uh, prevails within, within our, our culture. And, uh, and it, all of it is, is just a further evidence of, of how little we value innocence in our culture and consider it, it, it to be, so, and, and cease to consider it to be something uh, valuable and thus something to be protected. And on the basis of this alone, I mean, you see how deeply and how widely the devil is at work in our country and in our uh, world. The second thing that we see in terms of, of consequences in verse 7 is that Adam and Eve, they sewed fig leaves together as a covering for their nakedness. And uh, we'll study a little bit about this next time. And uh, certainly God did not accept this attempt that they made at covering uh, the consequences of their sin. Uh, we cannot uh, accomplish the covering of our sin in, in our own way. It can only be dealt with God's way and, and on his, his terms. And here, but here you see they sow these fig leaves and the sowing of the fig leaves to cover their uh, nakedness, to cover the consequences of, of their sin. It represents every attempt, both present and throughout history of sinful man, to endeavor to make himself fit for the presence of God on the basis of our own human effort and on the basis of some invention of ours, some idea of covering or salvation that comes from our own uh, noggins, our own ideas. And it, in, in this, this kind of covering ourselves with these fig leaves, it represents trying to now uh, undo the consequences of separation from God, to make myself acceptable to God on the basis of good works or on the basis of convincing myself that if I do at least slightly more good in the course of my life than I do bad, that that will make me acceptable before God and, uh, and, it'll, uh, and the good will outweigh the bad. Uh, the world is full of man-made religion and man-made religion is all characterized by the same thing. I do something of human effort in order to gain God's uh, approval. And, uh, and, and so you have all of these kind of religious activities, all of these religions, and all of it is fig leaves. One of the things that's interesting to me about the whole fig leaf thing is that, it, is that they immediately felt compelled in covering themselves with fig leaves 
they immediately felt compelled to cover their reproductive organs. Um, What would have made sense to me is that we would read the account and we would have thought that they would have created a covering for their eyes or for their ears. Those were the senses that the devil used in order to uh, gain an entrance into their lives and their will uh, by, with his lies and his temptation. Those were the gateway senses that, that he used, but they didn't. They didn't put the fig leaves there. They put the fig leaves elsewhere. And so why did they instinctively cover their reproductive organs? And it's because they are the foundations of life in mankind. And here with Adam and Eve is the consciousness that somehow uh, human reproduction has been also affected by their sin and that human reproduction will never ever be the same again. Not merely in terms of the pain that a woman will, as we'll see in a moment or two, a woman will endure in bringing a child into the world and, and childbirth, but that somehow these rep- reproductive organs will now be used, uh, this sense that they had, to bring children into the world who will never know the sexual innocence that they they had known, and that they would now use these reproductive organs to bring sinners into the world. Paul gets it so magnificently in Romans chapter 5 in terms of of what uh, they became aware of immediately and and what we're to become aware of uh, immediately as well. And, And he described that that Adam's sin resulted in the fact that each of us, as his descendants, that we are born into the world with a sin nature, and that, our, that, that we are not sinners because we sin. Now, our, our problem is much more deep-rooted than that, but we sin because we're sinners, And that from Adam, we are born with a sin nature. We are every one of us born with a nature that is already conversant with sin. And that is why you never have to teach a child to sin. You never have to teach a child to throw a fit in a supermarket because they want some candy or something uh, like that. It all comes to them very naturally, as it did uh, uh, to us. Each of us is a sinner Uh, by nature and by practice. Uh, Under the Old Testament law of Moses, it's interesting that an offering had to be made, an offering for purification after the birth of a son or a daughter. And there were different offerings that were offered depending on whether it was a boy or uh, was a girl. But the fact that God required of the children of Israel a purification offering related to the birth of a child. Children are a gift from the Lord. But it was still a a reminder uh, that uh, despite all of that, that every birth brings another fallen uh, sinner and unclean human being into the world. Now, you notice in verse 8 the, that they endeavor to hide from God. It's hard. I don't know if you've ever tried it. Hiding from God is really tough. It's tough um, because we live in his uh, living room. 
uh, all of creation he inhabits. I mean, there's nothing secret about anybody's life. If you think uh, Siri or uh, whoever is spying on who would have one of those in your house, God bless you. But I'm, I'm a little uh, steeped in the 70s. I don't trust that kind of stuff, but they're probably watching me through the television. I'm just, okay, I, I don't know what, but it's, it's a little creepy, isn't it, that you could always be listened to on, on all of this stuff? Really weird. But you can't hide from God, but they endeavor to do that. And they, they, uh, they uh, hiding from God uh, because of their guilt and because of their, their shame. The context of it is that they're, they're walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day, and so uh, apparently fellowship between God and Adam and Eve occurred uh, after the, the main heat of the day and the late part of afternoon as the breezes would, would come up. Uh, this is, I, I'm convinced that, uh, the, that who they met with in that Garden of Eden on a, on a daily basis was Jesus himself. We know the Bible teaches that the Father is spirit. He does not have a body. Um, I, I suppose he could have, you know, used a body to interact with them, but it, it's just as likely that this is a Christophany. It is a, an Old Testament uh, appearance of, of Jesus prior to his, his uh, incarnation. And there are several of those in, 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 the Old, uh, in the Old Testament. Now, even before God speaks, they, they hear God, they hear the sounds of his presence in the garden, and they respond to that by uh, hiding themselves uh, from him. And here, are, again, are the initial indications of uh, they've never known guilt before. They had never known fear before. Uh, they had never known shame before. These were entirely new uh, emotions and experiences uh, for them. And, and here they, you know, come forth on the pages of Scripture as some of the first evidences of the fall in mankind. That sense of guilt before God, that sense of shame uh, before God. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt ashamed in your life of something that uh, you've done. I assume that all of us have. In fact, I hope all of us have. I don't care how good you are. Uh, but So I, I don't think I'm talking about something that is, is theoretical for all of us. To experience shame, to really experience a deep, uh, true shame is a fairly miserable experience uh, in life. No fun at all. But it is an important thing to experience when we do something shameful. A and then to allow shame to work on us, uh, to turn us back to God and then to go turn us back to doing the right thing, and then to make us determine to never do that shameful thing ever again in our life because of how uh, displeasing the emotion and the experience uh, is. Shame, it is important to feel shame when I have done something shameful. 
And, uh, and of course, today, again, in our culture, shame, it's all passe, isn't it? I mean, that's that quaint, old-fashioned kind of obsolete uh, notion. I mean, it is something belonging to the past. We don't believe it anymore. We're too sophisticated. We're uh, too far along in the evolutionary process to, to think that shame has any purpose in a, 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 a human being's uh, life today. And so today, our culture... Uh, does anything and everything, literally anything and everything, to keep anyone from feeling shame over anything. No matter how shameful our actions or our words or our decisions, uh, a person can say anything, a person can do anything, and, and, but, and no matter how shameful it is, the one thing that no one can ever make them feel as a result of the shameful thing they, they've done is to feel shame for it. I mean, you live in the culture. You see how people are protected from, from this by and large by a secular, secular culture. When I was a boy and a youth, and it did not do me any harm, one of the worst things that you could ever hear was have a school teacher, after you had done something shameful, to have a school teacher say, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for having done that. I mean, how big do you feel? Oh, just about an inch tall. I mean, that would really do its work on you. And whether Mrs. Gutzman said it, or Mrs. Jacobson said it, or Mr. Hample said it, or Mr. Borders might say it, they didn't all say it to me. I had it once, and that was enough. I became much more discreet. And I'm just kidding. But, but it'll teach you a lesson when it's done and when it's done, done publicly. But it, 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 the, what it accomplishes in our life is, is absolutely um, uh, fabulous and, and important. And of course, now we're, we're way too sophisticated to be confronting people in that kind of way. But I, I would ask you, is the world better for it? And are people better for it? And, and uh, in this great effort uh, that, that we make to throw off any and all feeling of shame or consideration of shame by artificially protecting people from the shame that their actions deserve? And, and the answer is, is no. And, and, and like Adam and Eve, we should feel shame. It is a wonderful thing to feel when we have done something shameful. But never to stay in that condition. God doesn't intend us to feel it to, to stay there but in order that I might realize I have done something shameful. It is embarrassing not only to others, but it is embarrassing to myself. And then to take that action or that issue and get right with God on what it is that I, I did wrong there and then confess my sin and make it right to others that have been affected by the shameful thing that I've said and, and that I've done, and then allow the experience of shame to keep me from doing the shameful thing uh, uh, again. It's an important part of life, but our culture deals with it in an artificial way where people do not confront e either shame or confront the cause of shame, and so they never get released from it. No one ever gets released from the shame of our sin and our past by stuffing it 
or accepting any of the definitions that it doesn't really matter that the culture uh, gives to us. It sits there, it lives in us, it's alive decades later within us until we deal with it in a meaningful way between us and God and in others and until it has done uh, a needed work uh, within us. And if you, I assume that every one of us are the same in this this room, all of us again have something shameful about our past, things that we would want to change. And if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you've tried to stuff it, you've tried to talk yourself out of it, you've walked up and down every hallway of every kind of legitimization anybody has given you in order to be freed from it and you are not freed from it because you can't be freed from it until you receive God's forgiveness concerning it and then make it right with other people and come to know the Lord this morning, give your life to him this morning and then enter into the freedom from a life of guilt and past guilt and shame. Notice in verses 12 and 13 that when God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin, rather than doing the simple thing, which would have been to confess their sin, and to ask for God's forgiveness related to it and and throw themselves on the mercy of God, what they did is they resorted to blame shifting and excuses and to uh, victimhood. Of course, we know nothing about this in our culture either, do we? Uh, And so Adam in verse 12, he's the first one that's up to bat and God confronts him concerning his sin and he responds, the woman whom you gave to be with me She gave me of the tree and I ate. This guy's good. I mean, he's fallen. He fell fast and uh, and, and deeply fallen. I mean, in one sentence, he puts not only Eve, but he puts Eve and God between him and the consequences of his sin. He blames both of them. In in half a sentence, he's able to, uh, to try and accomplish that. And essentially communicating to God, listen, I mean, you remember as well as I do, things were going just fine uh, when it was just you and me. Ah, but no, 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 you had to go and create a woman. And here we are. You got any other bright ideas that uh, are going to make life uh, difficult for me? And Lord, you know, I, and this is, people, people use this all the time, both husbands and wives. Lord, you know, you know, I, I was, you know how much more spiritual I was when I was single. And you brought her into my life. You brought him into my life. And I mean, now I struggle in ways that I've never struggled, you know, uh, before with these problems. I never knew them when I was, when I was single. And so essentially he says to God, all right. Uh, it's the woman you gave me. So it sounds like you and Eve have some things that you need to work out. So you go over and work that out. I'll be waiting right over here. And uh, when you do and you, and you want to chat with me on all of it. You notice he, he did confess. It, it would be wrong to say he never confessed. He did confess. You look right in the passage. He said, I ate. He confessed it. But what he did is he buried the confession under this mountain of blaming God and Eve for his sin. And so he, he presented himself to God as a victim. Uh, Eve does exactly the same thing, but she, she finds another source of, of victimhood and, and blame shifting. 
So uh, she's, uh, as God confronts her, she said, it was the devil that made me uh, do this. She blamed the devil for her actions. And so, again, Eve, important to notice, she did confess that, that she ate, but again, only after blaming everyone else, you know, for her actions, and she, she presents herself as a victim as well. And I do think it's important for us just to stop and allow this thing to search our hearts and our lives a little bit today, because this whole issue of blame shifting, uh, making excuses for our sin and wrongdoing, claiming even victimhood in, in all of it, it, it is so prevalent uh, within our culture that to, as to be an eco- epidemic. And, and because we live in this culture, it's easy even as a Christian to begin to adopt this attitude and, and have it begin to characterize uh, our lives. And so we need to just stop and to ask ourselves whether we are resorting to this as an excuse for living a life of sin or rebellion against God in some area of, of our lives. And so here we are, we're saved, and, uh, but we don't live the life God has called us to. And then, the, and then all the excuses that can come out. It, it's my genes, it's my heredity. I mean, this, is a, this has come down through the lineage. I mean, everyone in my family has this kind of a problem and this kind of a propensity for sin. Or it's my environment that I, I'm in. Or it was my parents. Or it was my children. Or it was my, it's my husband, my wife, my childhood, my boss, my teachers, my friends, my race or my ancestry, or the culture around me, my lack of opportunities in life. And because our culture has become a therapeutic culture, you don't even have to be creative on this front anymore. You don't even have to have the creative ability to come up with your own excuses or your own reasons for victimhood. Our culture will deliver them to you 25 at a time for free overnight. No, instantaneously. It will do in our lives. They will supply these things to us uh, immediately and uh, uh, and, and an endless list of them, and we see it all over in our culture. You might have seen the, the article in the news where uh, blame shifting and victimhood reached a, a new height where, when a young man sued his parents uh, for his birth. Uh, he, he declared uh, that he had not been involved in the decision and had never been asked whether he uh, wanted to be born. Uh, I read the entire article. It was a perfect waste of time, except for a sermon illustration <clears throat> and the madness of the culture. But if uh, I, I searched the article in the hopes that somehow, as a part of the article, uh, he could inform the court and all of us that just how that's to be accomplished uh, in, in terms of bringing an unconceived child into uh, uh, the decision-making concerning its birth. But even though that's an extreme, it's so dominant within our culture. I think all of us know, to some degree or another, afflicted with it. You ever have something go wrong and you've, you're busted, and the first thing in your mind or out your lips is, is somebody else? If you hadn't been in the room, I wouldn't have... Hit my thumb and throw the hammer. 
when did you sneak in here? Or whatever it might be. You ever, and, and then and the, the first thing is those excuses and the victimhood on it. And, and it's important to stop and to realize that's an evidence of the fall. There's nothing virtuous about it. And have you ever known people who can never admit they're wrong? You know them for decades. Never. Not one time. They've been wrong a million times. They cannot get it out of their mouth to admit I was wrong there. And, and, it, is, and, it, and it is to live in an unbelievable immaturity. And this immaturity is being nurtured within, within our culture, across the whole board of the culture. And it's important. I mean, if, if this example of the fall stings in my life or your life, is to just stop and look at it and say, I've bought the culture. I'm being fashioned by the culture and not the Word of God in this issue. And to say, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you stop me from this pattern uh, within my life? And he will do it. And concerning us as Christians, there's no need to live in that, that kind of a, a place. Uh, Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, to, declares that we have the ability to face any temptation, even the temptation to blame, shift, and claim victimhood in a situation that isn't accurate, to face every temptation and, and to handle that in a godly way. He, he wrote that God, is, uh, he is, uh, God works in you uh, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. God gives us the, the will to do and the power to do the right thing, even in this uh, deep, deeply rooted uh, characteristic that could be a part of our lives. Uh, Peter wrote in that same regard uh, of God's divine power that has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness. There is no basis for excuse or blame shifting for wrongdoing in the life of a Christian. Because no matter what other people are or they aren't, or circumstances are or they aren't, the Holy Spirit is greater in that situation for us. And so this kind of thing is as old as Adam and Eve. It's such a mistake to nurture it in the culture as is, is being done. But we want to make sure that, that we realize that we are responsible for uh, the decisions that we make in life as Christians, and we are responsible for the human being uh, that, that we are. The consequences for the serpent are there in verse 14. And, uh, and God judges the serpent because that was the animal that was used by Satan in the temptation. And he, and he says there, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. Now, that, that, get, that gets our attention. And the reason that gets our attention is because God associates the serpent here with this, uh, the cattle and the beasts of the field among his creation. He does not associate the serpent with the, uh, with the things that, that creep on the earth in his creation. Let me read the passage to you in Genesis chapter 1, verse 25. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and he associates the serpent with, the, with that category. Uh, and then, but God went on, as the record is there in Genesis 1.25, and, the, and there's a third category that he describes, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it, it was, was good. He associates the, the serpent with cattle and beasts and not with crawling things. 
And, and, and I think it hints, there's a reason for it, I think it hints very strongly at the fact that when serpents were created, that they were, uh, in the, they were like cattle and they were like beasts and that they didn't crawl. Uh, but somehow they were upright. They moved in that, that kind of, of a fashion. Uh, someone has put it perfectly uh, when they wrote, the serpent that is today, the serpent that is, is not the serpent that was. And so the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve uh, might very well have been a creature like uh, Jar Jar Binks, <laughs> to quote one of the most unpopular uh, of George Lucas's creations in his, in his series of movies. But uh, I'm sorry to have put that image in your mind. You, you'll, hopefully you can forgive me for it and erase it. But something uh, uh, upright uh, in, in that way. And he declares to the serpent, on your belly you shall go, you shall eat dust all of the days of your life. And so from that moment, uh, the serpent would crawl on its belly, eating dust not in the sense of sustenance, but in the, tense, in the sense of, of the humility of its, its, uh, its place, even within the animal kingdom. The entire animal kingdom w- was affected by uh, the, the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, but, but now uh, no part of the animal kingdom more affected than, than the serpent for his place in in all of it. And so the fact that serpents still uh, get around on their bellies eating dust, it's, a, it, it's intended to be an everlasting reminder of, to mankind of uh, the temptation and the fall of man. The consequences for Satan are listed there in verse 15. And we won't get into them today because they speak very deeply to uh, our salvation. And so we'll look at it, we'll explore that uh, in that context, uh, Lord willing, next week. The consequences for Eve uh, and for women in general are listed in verse 16. Uh, she would now experience pain in uh, childbirth. So evidently before the fall, uh, childbirth was intended to, to be uh, uh, painless. Uh, we don't know, have no revelation for how that would have been the case. I think we can be very confident that uh, one of the televangelists who, who mentioned uh, uh, years ago that he had re- received a revelation from God uh, on this very issue, and uh, that prior to uh, the fall, that uh, women would have given birth from under their arm. And we all, we all immediately sense how much less painful that would be uh, for, for women. But, but the pain here, interestingly enough, it, it is intentional. And the pain in childbirth is a reminder uh, of, uh, of her part, Eve's part, in the fall. And that uh, because of that fall, every birth not only includes bringing another sinner into the world, uh, but that they are now being born into a life of pain and suffering themselves as a result of of Eve's fall. Uh, He he declares that you're uh, a part of the curse, and this may be the harder uh, of the two, your desire will be for your husband. And this passage is interpreted in a lot of, two main ways, and uh, depending on, you know, the English translation that you have, how they uh, handle the word desire will indicate how they they, uh, they translate the verse. The, the, the word desire 
that, that uh, uh, Moses uses here, it, it, can, it may refer to the fact that despite the pain in childbirth that the woman would now uh, endure, that she would still uh, desire to be sexually active with her husband. Uh, it wouldn't be like have one child and go, okay, we're never doing that again. Uh, so th- th- that their, their, that desire would continue within, within her life in that way in the context of marital relations. And then the second way that this is interpreted is that the word, of de- the word desire refers to something negative, uh, namely de- the desire, her desire for her husband's role. That is, that, her, that she would have a desire to lead him, uh, to, to dominate him, as she did in tempting him to partake of, of the forbidden uh, fruit. And so uh, this temptation that she would have to, to be the leader or the head in, in the marriage. And you can make a strong case for either one of those in, interpretations because the Hebrew word that is used for desire there, it's used only three times in the Old Testament. Uh, once in Genesis 3.16, as we see it before us. Uh, the other time it's used in Song of Solomon by, uh, by Solomon himself. In Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's and his desire, uh, there's the word again, is toward me. And in that context, it speaks of a sexual desire, which supports the first interpretation. But the word is also used the third, and, uh, third time in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where God uh, speaks to Cain and said, uh, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you but you should rule over it. And so here you have that that same word desire uh, being used. Uh, It it refers to a desire that is sinful and has to be kept uh, subdued. It really doesn't have any kind of ultimate bearing on the final consequence as as the Lord lays out uh, to Eve concerning her husband, and he shall rule over you. It is important to realize that when God speaks this to Eve concerning Adam, and, uh, and, and because it is woman's portion uh, to this day, it, it, he is not saying that women are, uh, th- that women are to take a, a... He's not talking about men and women in general. He is talking very specifically in the marriage relationship. So no woman needs to submit to another man uh, that is that she is not married to, and neither do, and, and shouldn't feel compelled to do so. In the same way, man shouldn't feel the need to lead uh, any woman or all women, uh, except for for his his wife. And so, the the uh, important to to notice that and uh, the, in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. Evidently and clearly, really, the, the relationship between Adam and Eve, it operated completely naturally. It operated very, very organically. Eve came out of Adam as a helpmeet, and Adam's love for Eve was very, very strong, and their relationship just simply operated wonderfully in that way. But with the fall... It was necessary for God to define the roles and the responsibilities within a marriage in a way that would have never been required otherwise. 
And Eve played a very significant role in the fall of, of mankind. And so God ordained that the husband was to be the ultimate authority within a, a marriage and to be ultimately responsible for his wife and for his family. Now, in a Christian marriage, and certainly in a, a, a Christian marriage that is led and dominated by the Holy Spirit, uh, the norm is, I assume, the overwhelming majority of times when something is being discussed in terms of a direction between a husband and a wife is that we will agree on the overwhelming majority of, of things. It's clear we're supposed to go down path A instead of path B. There's a, an agreement, and, and we move in, in that, uh, that direction. And so you've got this agreement that comes out of a, a mutual love for one another, a mutual respect for one another within, within the, the, the relationship. And then, and then where there's something where they're not both quite on, on the same page on things, that each listens to one another with love and respect, hears one another out, and a discussion occurs, and, and then if it's not solved on that level, then they go to prayer. And then ask God, God, what is your mind on this issue uh, that, that we're facing here? And in that really, really small number of issues where the disagreement might uh, still continue through that kind of a grid, um, if there is still a disagreement and the husband feels uh, strongly from the Lord that, he, that this is the direction that we need to take or, or the decision we need to make here, she is to then submit to him on, on that, uh, on that uh, decision. And this is a part of the fall every bit as much as is Adam would bear his own uh, consequences. And if, ladies, if you think uh, he's getting off easy, uh, we move to verses 17 through 19 uh, on, uh, in terms of the consequences for Adam, for men, and, and really for the physical earth. And in verse 17, uh, Adam is told that the ground is cursed because of his sin, and, and then God elaborates on, on the, how the ground is cursed. Uh, it will now require hard work to uh, earn a living out of it, uh, to get it to produce enough in order to sustain ourselves in terms of, of food. Uh, it will require now a constant fight against thorns and against thistles and against weeds. You ever wonder, I'm here, we live in this wonderful ag uh, part of the country and the state and the world, really, and you, you know, toward the, the seasons that we're in, the peaches are all in now, but um, you know, you'd, you drive through the countryside and you smell those peaches and the orchards go on as far as you can see and, and the almonds and, and all of the grapes and, and, and everything. And as you see, uh, you see these, say, a field of peaches and you, you ask yourself, uh, why is it that a field left to itself does not naturally produce an orchard? Why does it naturally uh, provide, uh, produce uh, uh, weeds instead? Why does a field not left to itself not naturally just produce a field of wheat? Why does it always produce left to itself thorns and thistles? And somebody says it's a ridiculous question. It's all we've ever known. I'm not saying it's not what we've ever known since Adam and Eve. But here we have an explanation for the reason. And the answer is that it's because of the fall. He's told further that uh, bread or food is going to be won by great sweat. It's going to take a lot of energy, a lot of labor, a lot of work to put food on, on the table. 
And it's not just farming and that kind of thing. It's whatever any of us do for a living. And then, and then is, is if it couldn't get any worse, after a lifetime of that kind of labor, uh, then comes death and we return to the ground. <laughs> There's a lot of consequence there. Death reveals each and every one of us to be a physical descendant of Adam, and it links, links every one of us in this room and every person in human history to that fall in that ancient Garden of Eden. And I think it's fair for someone to really protest it, 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 a, a declaration like that and, and, and say, I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I don't believe that I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve. I don't believe in any of that. How in the world can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man and the fall of Adam is true? What proof is there that I'm a descendant of Adam, that I am fallen as the Bible teaches? God says, I'll give it to you in a word, death. You die. And God doesn't pull out a bunch of pie charts and a bunch of graphs, and he doesn't write a 400-page book for us to work through the whole thing. He puts it right in front of us in four words through the Apostle Paul in his letter to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, and he said, in Adam all die. And the existence of death is like a chain that is put around our ankle, and it goes back through all of history, and it ties us to the Garden of, of Eden. And then just look around the world that we live in. And in the light of the revelation of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and ask yourself if what we have been studying all these weeks, and specifically the last two weeks, isn't a, 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 an absolute, it, it, the world that we live in is, is, is exactly as it's described here in God's Word. From pain in childbirth, from natural catastrophes to uh, working to the point of exhaustion for a living all the way to death. And it is fascinating that God gave Adam and Eve uh, two great commands before the fall, uh, other than the prohibition to not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, be fruitful and multiply, and then he said, tend the earth. And these consequences for sin that were brought against both Adam and Eve were uh, relative to their primary roles. And the consequence came upon Eve in terms of her role as a childbearer and Adam in terms of as the physically stronger of the two as, as provider within a, a marriage. And, and the further result of all of this in verses 22 and 24 is that they were driven out, verse 24, out of the Garden of Eden and an angelic guard, verse 24, was placed uh, where they were driven out of the Garden of Eden with a sword that turned in all directions. In other words, there's no getting back in, uh, in there uh, alive. And all of this, verse 22, we're told was an act of God's love and of His grace, lest they should re-enter the Garden of Eden and in their, their fallen state, in their sinful state, eat of the tree of, the, uh, the, uh, the tree of life, rather, in, in the garden, and, and, and doing that as a sinner, to be doomed forever in an irreversible, sinful condition. And so, there's the account. What a mess. 
what a mess. We'll all have new bodies when we see Eve, Adam and Eve in heaven, so we'll love them. But what a mess sin has launched into the world. And you know, it's good as we've done last week and this week, I think, to just sit and just really just sit in the mess that is described in Genesis chapter 3 and to drink in all of its fullness. I mean, to feel, just to feel in our bones the enormity of the whole that we find ourselves in as sinners as a result of that fall. And as we sit here and we see how far-reaching the consequences of this sin is, to stop and wonder is if you did not know the rest of the story, who in the world and what in the world and how could even God find a way of saving us out of that mess so that when it's revealed to us, as we'll see next week, we will be left in awe over the plan that he came up with. He didn't come up with it. It was from eternity. And then be thankful in a way that we might not otherwise be thankful for our salvation in realizing what was required in a Savior to save us out of the magnitude of this mess. But if you're not saved here this morning, we don't want you waiting an hour, let alone a week. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to be released from your shame and your guilt, we all know about it, and to be able to enter into a personal relationship with God and have the confidence that when you die, you will one day spend eternity in heaven. All of this and more is all there to be received by asking and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. And there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to do exactly that and then receive the solution to all of this mess brought into your life by the Holy Spirit in a spiritual birth. If you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, these same men and women would love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Father, when we read these first three chapters of Genesis and when we read chapter 3, we marvel at how blind we would be in life, how ignorant we would be in life, uh, how limited our understanding would be. We thank you so much this morning for the revelation of your word and everything that you reveal in your word is the world around us and the world within us. Thank you, Lord, for clarity on these great questions in life. And thank you for the salvation that you have brought into human existence that is not only up to the mess that sin has brought into your creation, but able to overwhelm it. 
We thank you from the bottom of our hearts this morning for Jesus. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.